bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's potter's field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here's our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. Today's episode is brought to us by the Cheshire Union Gift Shop. It's a renovated farmhouse filled with antiques and handmade gifts. It's located in Cheshire, New York, just outside of Canandaigua, New York. And the Ishua Valley Historical Society in Franklinville, New York. And if you happen to stop in, say hi to Maggie while you're there. And now, today's episode. On a hot midsummer night in June of 1969, a group of police officers stormed into Greenwich Village's tiny Stonewall Inn, one of Manhattan's early gay and lesbian bars. Owned and operated by the notorious Genovese crime family, the bar had been recently transformed into a club for the neighborhood's emerging gay community. Police appeared that night, dragging a handful of intoxicated people into the street for immediate arrest under the city's statute, which allowed police to charge gay men with a misdemeanor for, quote, solicitation of homosexual relations. Those involved revolted. And For many New Yorkers, this confrontation was a long time coming. The Stonewall Riots, as they came to be called, was a turning point for the gay liberation movement, whose tensions had reached a boiling point in other parts of America, but whose actions had reached a fever pitch that fateful June night in Greenwich Village. And for those of you, I'm sure many are familiar, they just observed the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. Our very special guest today to discuss this, but also more so uh, what became known as the AIDS epidemic, especially in New York City, that resulted in the deaths of over 100,000 people. And our guest is Professor Michael Bronsky. Uh, He's a professor at Harvard University. Uh, He uh, is a professor of the practice in media and activism. He currently teaches in the Women's Gender and Sexuality Program, and his book, A Queer History of the United States, 
won both the Lambda Literary Award and the Stonewall Book Award. And he's also the author of The Pleasure Principle, Sex, Backlash, and the Struggle for Gay Freedom. And Professor Bronsky, welcome to Talking Heart Island. How are you? Thank you. I'm fine. Thank you, Mike. Good, good. Um, the first thought, uh, or first question I wanted to ask you is, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your background, where you're from, where you kind of grew up, and, uh, and then, of course, your relationship with Harvard University. Uh, are you from New York originally? I am not. I am actually, um, I wish, I am from a <laughs> suburb in New Jersey called Westfield, um, which is about 40 minutes out of New York. And my both of my sets of my grandparents, uh, one set lived in Queens and one in Brooklyn. So our family were pretty much in and out of Manhattan all the time since I was growing up. So, And my parents loved New York City. So we actually, I spent a lot of time as a child in and out of the city, uh, hanging out in, the, in Greenwich Village, going to Italian festivals in Little Italy, uh, going to shows in Midtown Manhattan. Um, and I, it was a different time. But when I was in high school, my parents um, allowed me and welcomed me to go into the city on my own and explore it when I was 14 or so. So I'm, wow. uh, I am not uh, technically from New York, but I've had a great deal of experience from it as from an early age. I went to college in Newark, New Jersey, to Rutgers in Newark. Um, and the best thing, well, it was a great school, but the really good thing was that you could take the PATH train over to Manhattan for 25 cents. <laughs> so I spent a good deal of my college years actually in Greenwich Village and around Manhattan. And uh, But then you eventually uh, relocated to where? When you I did. Moved? I actually went to Brandeis University in Waltham to get an MFA in playwriting. Um, so I moved up to Boston. I discovered actually uh, with an MFA in playwriting that there was more money to be made in gay political organizing than in playwriting. <laughs> and right. I became involved with uh, gay liberation politics in Boston and just stayed here. So I've been in Boston since 1971 um, as a freelance writer, as an activist, as an organizer, as an, what I like to call an independent scholar, meaning that I wrote books, but I didn't have a, an academic affiliation. And at the age of 50, I was invited to teach at Dartmouth College, and I taught their first gay, gay and lesbian studies course. And after 15 years there, I was invited to come and teach at Harvard, um, first as a lecturer and then a senior faculty. So then sort of my background, and a lot of my journalism was uh, on LGBT topics, sexuality, politics, feminism. So it's why I'm located in the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Department. Right. The, uh, the Stonewall riots, which we referenced earlier, how significant of an event was that for you? I mean, at the time that it occurred, was that something you said, hey, uh, things are changing or was it not really on your radar screen? No, it was completely on the radar. So I was um, I went to a liberal Catholic high school in New Jersey. We, it was the sort of high school in the 60s, right, where we got extra credit for going to civil rights marches as long as you wrote a paper about it. <laughs> And when I went to college, I became a member of Students for Democratic Society. Uh, when my friends became feminists in 1967, we were discussing feminism. Uh, I was very involved in the anti-war movement at, in college. So when Stonewall happened, which my friends and I heard about, because we were, we I was I've been out since 1967 or so, right? So uh, 
we we knew what was going on within the LGBT community. Uh, when we heard about it, um, we, it was very exciting. And then uh, my friends from college and I joined the Gay, Gay Liberation Front, which was founded probably about a month after Stonewall, so sometime in the middle to the end of July in 69. Um, and obviously, I've, um, I've been doing nothing else but uh, <laughs> this sort of work for the past 50 years. So Stonewall right. was, in fact, even though there was some gay organizing before, it was, it was smaller groups. Um, Stonewall was really, uh, really ignited the gay liberation movement across the country. What people don't realize, right, the Stonewall happened in New York. The first gay liberation group began in Manhattan, right? Um, but by September or September, October of that year, there were probably 350 gay, gay liberation, what was called GLF, right? Gay Liberation Front chapters across the country, right? So um, there's a phrase used by the Weather Underground that that idea is spread like prairie fire. <laughs> you know, and clearly, clearly, this was exactly the right time, right? And clearly, the message of gay liberation and of GLF spread literally like prairie fire across the entire country. And, and to Europe, London had a GLF chapter within a year. Right. The, um, the point at which AIDS began to appear in New York and, and elsewhere, um, it, it, was, it was a while before people understood what was happening, from what I understand. Is that correct? It what you mean? Uh, pe uh, people within the gay and lesbian community began to get it pretty quickly, right? I, I have to mm -hmm. say that in retrospect, right, that um, particularly in, in a very metropolitan, sophisticated city and, and diverse city such as New York, right, um, I, I think people got it pretty quickly. I mean, certainly, right, um, so an example would be that within two years of Stonewall, Time Magazine and Newsweek began using the word gay and not homosexual, mm -hmm. right? Which, which leads you to believe that they actually, um, that, that the effect, the, the cultural effect of the movement was so strong that even, you know, fairly middle of the road, certainly not radical or liberal magazines like Time and Newsweek um, understood what was going on and, and began using brand new language to describe people that had previously been described as homosexuals and in some papers, you know, as uh, perverts. <laughs> so um, it, I would say that in retrospect, gay liberation was waiting to happen. It happened at exactly the right moment, and it really changed the culture, right? I mean, Hollywood begins producing movies to aimed using gay themes probably – within three years of Stonewall. Right. The, uh, once the AIDS uh, epidemic began uh, in earnest, if that's the, the right word to use, uh, what was it like? Uh, it, I mean, you, you were kind of there. I mean, what I was there. I was, I was living in Boston, but the first AIDS cases, right, are 1981, right? People usually date the beginning of the epidemic to a short article in the New York Times that came out in, I believe, July 3rd or 4th in 1981 that had the headline, Rare, Rare Cancer Found in Homosexuals. Um, 
And that was in New York. You know, this was a report on a uh, CDC, Center for Disease Control, um, study. Uh, but certainly people had been aware of this happening in New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Boston, certainly in other cities, right? Um, so that – and the gay male community had been aware of it obviously for a year already because people's friends were getting sick. Um, but certainly the public recognition of it happened in 1981. And, and by that point, people were dying. I think you mentioned um, the number 100,000, right? People who were dying, not just gay men, but primarily at that point, gay men were being diagnosed and dying of a strange disease that no one even had a name for at that point. Right. And, and, and you knew many of them or actually when i was researching your biography your partner died of a he did he uh, he died in 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 the early 1990s but mm -hmm. certainly i knew men in boston who were sick in 1981 and 1982 and by you know by by 1985 i probably knew 30 men who had died wow and and many more who were sick right I mean, what, but people, what people don't realize, right, is that because we think of history in retrospect um, as that, oh, you know, this is the HIV AIDS epidemic. It happened. It began then. It happened. But the reality was that no one even knew about the HIV virus until 85 or 86. No one knew what was causing the problem. Um, at one point, it was called GRID, G-R-I-D, which is gay-related immune deficiency because doctors were seeing it mostly at that point in um on the bodies of of gay men um i know when i i teach a class in aids and culture here at harvard right and and it's hard to get students they do pretty quickly but it's hard to get them to understand that actually when you're in the middle of a crisis or in the middle of an epidemic and no one knows much about it or where it's going it's hard to make any determinations about what to do <laughs> Right, right. It's much easier uh, to know this 20 years later. Sure. You say that now you, you currently teach a course on it. Um, is AIDS, in one respect, kind of off the radar screen of the younger generation? I'm struck with the fact that 1,500 people a year still die of AIDS in New York City. Yes, that's true. Uh, and, and in fact, nationally, for all of the United States, there are... Um, the estimate at this point is a thousand people um, uh, trans or get AIDS through transmission every year. So that's fifty thousand people a year are still getting AIDS. Right, right, and, uh, and part of the uh, trouble. I was going to say that part of the trouble, right, is mm -hmm. that people do not know they have AIDS and they get sick. And there's the med the medications which are pretty good at this point that just don't work because they've become too sick, right? So a lot of the problem is about education and about um, uh, people getting uh, getting medical attention and medical care, either because they're not able to or because they don't know that they actually are HIV positive. Is the education, uh, however it's done, better now than it was 10, 20 years ago? Or, or again, oh. has it kind of taken a back seat to other issues? Well, the education is much better, right? I mean, I just just yesterday I saw a very good ad on the TV that was very diverse, had openly gay men, had a woman of color, 
had a, a father with young children <laughs> talking about being HIV positive. And, you know, the message was, um, I can deal with this. There are drugs. I go to my doctor, right? But I think the trouble, right, is that to a large degree, even though we have better drugs now, even though we have had better education, and what you said, right, the education now is uh, it's just immeasurably better than 20 years ago and even better than 10 years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I think that there's still stigma attached to HIV, right? Because it's basically transmitted. Uh, the main modes of transmission are, you know, sexual transmission or through sharing needles, uh, both of which are to varying degrees, certainly needle use stigmatized in our society and people don't want to admit to it. Um, so, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard to reach certain populations. Um, when those populations are actually dealing with stigma. I think we've come a long way in doing that. But, you know, a thousand cases a week is a lot of cases a week. That's 50,000 a year. Sure. Um, let, let me take you back uh, in time a little bit. In, in my research of this uh, issue, uh, I was looking at some of the hospitals in New York City that were really at the forefront of treating AIDS uh, victims. And, and as you know, there was a lot of paranoia going on around then. And you had to be pretty brave to be a part of this, uh, you know, the medical establishment in, in a sense. And, and one of the institutions that I came across was St. Vincent's Hospital. Were you, had you ever been there? I, yes, I have been there. I've been there. I'm not living in New York. I didn't go there as a client or a patient, but I certainly visited people there. And for your audience, St. Vincent's is in the heart of, of uh, Greenwich Village, right? So it, and the Greenwich right. Village. Um, has been, you know, in various ways since the 20s and 30s, and certainly from the 50s on, um, a gay male and lesbian enclave in New York. So it makes perfect sense geographically that St. Vincent's would actually bear the brunt of a great deal of um, medical care. And and what 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 you just said, right? That in fact. Um, There was a lot of paranoia and there was a great deal of fear. And I have to say, not, you know, at places like St. Vincent's, not so much so, or even other hospitals um, in metropolitan areas, because, you know, they were dealing with this a lot. And, and, and doctors and nurses um, should be used to dealing with <laughs> people who are dying and people who may be infected. They actually, you know, that, that's why we have rubber gloves and masks. <laughs> And why we right, have protocols right. to take care of people, right? Um, and I, I think the one thing that HIV AIDS did was that it really increased awareness of how important all of these protocols were. But, you know, I, I had a good friend, I live in Boston, a good friend who was actually a physician who was in a hospital in Rhode Island. Um, and people there knew him and he... Uh, was not, they were not afraid of him, but they didn't know how to treat him. They had no notion. And this is 1986. You know, I mean, I mean, all of his friends got together and, and literally sort of kidnapping is a harsh word, but arranged behind the scenes to have him move to Boston, where the medical care right. was much better, you know, and we're talking about Rhode Island, which is 
a small city, but a very progressive city with several colleges. <laughs> right. Um, and by the late 80s, you know, so I think a lot of the trouble was not that people were, I mean, certainly there are horrible cases of people being evicted from their, from their apartments, people refusing to take someone with AIDS into an ambulance or funeral homes refusing to take a body, right? I right. think that that hospitals in large cities, certainly San Francisco is a model, right, um, stepped up to this and St. Vincent's did as well, which is not to say that people didn't face discrimination across the board in many other places and possibly for, from individual orderlies, nurses, and doctors. Right. I mean, even uh, getting back to Hart Island, uh, the first uh, AIDS patients, people who died of AIDS who were buried at Hart Island were buried 14 feet deep. Yeah. Um, and one has to wonder what was it they were concerned about that somehow the virus would come out of the ground and, and what? Uh, yeah, well, in fact, those I, who are already dead. Right. And certainly in the late 80s, I knew somebody who was a college professor who was in the humanities. He wasn't a scientist who was who had AIDS and who was dealing with it pretty well and announced one day that he wanted to be cremated, which was fine, but he was afraid that his body would, would spread AIDS after he had died. And was really, we were not able to convince him this was a completely irrational fear. I mean, certainly if he wanted to be cremated, that was fine. Um, but that, you know, because the AIDS virus is fairly fragile if it's out of the body. <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly, it's very fragile if it's in a dead person and it has nothing to feed off of. <laughs> right, right. Um, but right, so I think I think part of the power, part of the fear, and the um, the cultural paranoia around AIDS, you know, comes comes from a powerful place of people not understanding it and of people um, literally making stuff up, right? There were years when people said, oh, you can get AIDS if somebody, if a mosquito bit somebody who was HIV positive and then the mosquito bit you, right? Epidemiologically, right, right. this makes no sense. And and yet the fear is so strong. You know, uh, and maybe you can address this. One of the uh, uh, issues is trying to determine of those who died of AIDS in New York City during this period, how many were buried on Hart Island, mm -hmm. and there were uh, many stories uh, that I've come across where the parents of the now deceased son were contacted. In a lot of cases, the parents were out and living in the Midwest somewhere, and they were told uh, what had happened, and they were not interested in mm -hmm. uh, in taking care of the remains of their son. And so many, many uh, thousands, we, we don't know how many thousands, therefore went unclaimed their bodies. And, and that's how they ended up on Hard Island. Right. And it's, I it's think really quite a sad is, story. You know, it, that's amazing, right? And I, I think um, there's a, uh, an uh, HIV, uh, uh, an ACT UP activist in New York named Sarah Shulman, Right. And, and Shulman said in an essay, right, that the, you know, um, that the behavior around AIDS and particularly around families, right, was just simply the homophobia writ large 
and put into a different context, right? So a lot of the men, particularly, you know, if you're thinking of a man who's 30 and lives in New York and it's 1980, which meant he was born in 1950 and he, you know, came from a conservative family, it's easy to blame the Midwest. It could be anywhere. It could be New Jersey. We, sh we shouldn't blame Ohio for everything. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, he may have come out in college. He may have actually not dealt with his family. He may have actually been estranged from his family, right? There, there, I mean, the homophobia during the 50s and 60s is very strong that for a family, and I'm not excusing the family's behavior, right? Because there are plenty of families I know who like had strained relationships with their gay son and overcame that to take care of them. Um, but, you know, it must be a complete shock if you haven't spoken, really spoken to your son in 15 years, in 10 years. <laughs> Um, to hear he had died of this new disease that nobody understood um, and to feel no parental um, need to take care of his body after his death, right? I mean, there's one, one of the things, and it's true of in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and many other places that, in fact, a lot of these uh, – men when they died were taken care of by by their friends and by the right. community and, and that, that 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 may have meant you know being buried in hard island because there was no money to buy a a uh plot or even or, or even to pay for a cremation right or no one left to uh, take right. responsibility right yeah yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. I mean, if, you know, I mean, I, I actually knew people in San Francisco, lesbian friends, right. Who said that, um, by 1990 and, you know, and, and remember, we don't really have drugs that work until 95 or 96. Yeah. By 1990, that their networks of gay male friends were pretty much extinguished and that they had to do a lot of the community work of taking care of people. Right. The um, I, I want to actually shift gears just a bit in the three to four minutes that we have sure. left. I wonder if you could talk about your book, uh, the other book, The Pleasure Principle, Sex Backlash and the Struggle for Gay Freedom. Pretty evocative title. Uh, what, what can you tell us about it? Sure. The book was an attempt. For, so I, that, it came out in 19 in the late 90s, and it it was to a large degree, a summation of everything that I had been writing, of, of many things that I had been writing about since 1970. And it, it was an attempt to actually look at the, um, I mean, it's very easy and people do it all the time to say, oh, you know, the heterosexual world is homophobic or people are homophobic or people, uh, gay people are oppressed, you know, all of which is, true and not true, depending on what period you're talking about. But my book was really an attempt to actually look at the complicated, um, deeper structural relationships between heterosexuality and heterosexual culture. I mean, not heterosexuality, but between mainstream culture, heterosexual and mainstream culture, and um, a culture, an alternative culture of homosexuality, right? So the the reality is is the, what I discovered writing, right? The reality is that um, it's a very complicated relationship. 
that in fact um mainstream culture has always been more than happy to be influenced by gay culture uh culture created within the gay community and which traveled outside right so um i mean an example might be um the notion of you know the the act of drag or or people cross dressing was always part of the gay community and yet you know in many ways uh mainstream culture loved drag it was sort of a um it not only challenged their notions of what gender might be right but it gave them an outlet um so what i tried to do in the book was to really was to really map out how complicated this ongoing relationship was and how mainstream culture was more than happy to take aspects of gay male and lesbian culture um when it gave them pleasure right so the book is called the pleasure principle a phrase i took from freud right <laughs> um and but they you know once it got too obvious or it became too close the mainstream culture became very sort of wary of it so the book is is sort of looking at this very delicate complicated line in which um larger structures in mainstream culture are actually driven by minority cultures i mean you could all you you could also see this right in the relationship of african-american culture in america to white culture so one way of looking at it is that we really wouldn't have what we call american music without having what we call black music whether it's blues or gospel or jazz or rhythm and blues or even rap now right except if you look at the 1950s as a um case study right uh america loves rock and roll they actually love little richard they love the shirelles and the supremes um they yeah they love other african-american singers and yet we still have jim crow laws that we still have lynchings up until the 50s right so the the acceptance of the pleasure from that culture um never stopped people from being racist in the same way that the pleasure that people got from gay culture didn't stop them from being homophobic well professor michael bronsky i want to thank you very much for uh coming on to our program uh, we well, covered a lot of ground me, Mike. it's been fascinating and uh, again thank you very much for appearing on talking heart island thank you thank you Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions, about the podcast itself, or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean. And we're Talking Heart Island. Mm -hmm.